baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you, as always, for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. This past week, KCBS has been looking at the pros and cons of living in this fabulous, expensive, beautiful, congested, dynamic, overwhelming place we call home, the Bay Area. And the ultimate question that has come out of every one of these conversations about the cost of living, the commute, the stress, is the name also of our four-part series, Is It Worth It? Is it worth it for the wages, the weather, the geography, the culture, the opportunities? And is the Bay Area, as it is, sustainable as a healthy, diverse region? My guest this week on In-Depth has the expertise to help us answer some of those questions. Former U.S. Labor Secretary and Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, Robert Reich, has been out in front for years talking about the high cost of income inequality, the forces helping and hurting the health of the American middle class and distributed power in our democracy. And he's made the Bay Area his home. And so he's in a unique position to look at the macro and microeconomic issues here and perhaps give us a look into the Bay Area's future. His latest book, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few, is now out in paperback. Professor Robert Reich, welcome back to In-Depth. Well, thank you, Jane. Very happy to have you here. Is it worth it uh, living in the Bay Area? We're all struggling. There was a, a headline in April in the San Jose Mercury News. In costly Bay Area, even six-figure salaries are considered low income. Now, those That was from the latest uh, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development numbers uh, releasing its 2017 income limits, determining who qualifies for affordable or subsidized housing. So six-figure income for a family of four can be considered low income here. Have we reached the fulcrum of quality of life versus the ability to be here? Well, we uh, it's going to be very hard uh, for people who are poor or young people who are just starting out uh, to be here in the Bay Area uh, over the next 10, 20, 30 years unless some very, very fundamental changes are made in terms of housing and transportation uh, and kind of access to all of the things that people need. Uh, right now, we are on an unsustainable pathway with regard to low-income people, and I am also going to include young people. Uh, we have some choices to make. I mean, the, the Bay Area, if nothing changes, is going to be basically a center of uh, old people and wealthy people. And some of those people are going to be old and wealthy, uh, but there's probably not going to be many other people here uh, in, in 20 or 30 years. Uh, that's not going to be a happy place in the sense that we know that the best communities and the best regions around America are diverse economically and by age and by ethnicity. And, uh, well, I, I think there's a danger of losing that here. 
You were one of the many out in front uh, talking about raising the minimum wage, $15 minimum wage. But even that in a region like this is uh, unsustainable. It's unsustainable. That's right. And obviously, if you raise the minimum wage too high, you are going to cause unemployment because there are going to be some employers who say, well, I just it's just not worth it to me uh, to have this person as much as I like this person uh, work at an, at a wage that is higher than the person is economically worth. Uh, so the minimum wage can't be the only answer, obviously. Well, some of some folks, planners, will say, look, what we need is just it's supply and demand. It's that simple. We just need more housing, more housing. Uh, and we need more housing near transportation. Is it really that simple? No, it's never that simple. Housing is part of the puzzle, uh, and transportation is part of the puzzle. And they're really, many, uh, in many instances, two sides of the same coin. That is, if you have better public transportation, you have better access to lower-cost land and lower-cost housing or possible developments of low-cost housing because with better public transportation, people can live further away from their work. And that means that they have access to housing that may be lower cost. If you don't have the kind of public transportation system you need, then everybody is sort of hemmed in uh, and they can't get to work except with regard to a, a commute that can be harrowing. Uh, but a, another piece of the same puzzle, Jane, is land use. That is, if you look at the Bay Area north of San Francisco, you've got wonderful, beautiful Marin County. But, uh, you know, Marin County has some very, very strict land use policies. And I am really one of the beneficiaries of that land use, as we all are. I mean, we can get up there and we can hike and we, we have open space. But the downside there is that we don't have a lot of space for a lot of homes. Uh, and our, we don't really have the bridges and the public transportation we need to get to places like Marin County or to even get to the East Bay very easily. Uh, and so we're kind of constrained. And when you have that kind of supply constraint, that also contributes to an increase in prices of homes. And, uh, you know, there, there are ways we can talk about to mitigate that, but let's be realistic. I mean, it's uh, land use planning and and transportation and public transportation and housing. It all goes together. It all, uh, it either works or it doesn't. And right now it's not. But then the quality of life issue comes in. We could certainly increase housing, give up open space, though. You know, those are the quality of life issues. Well, there's something called, uh, and a couple of years ago, a few years ago, planners were very excited about this, and they, then they ran into bureaucratic stone walls. But it's, it's called smart growth. That is, you create more dense housing uh, in certain areas, and then you make sure that there are very, very carefully controlled open green areas between these clusters of dense housing, and you have public transportation linking up these clusters, uh, and also linking up these clusters with uh, shops and schools and, and also work. Now, around the country, there have been pl some places where smart growth has worked, where they have had dense clusters of housing and open spaces and public transportation. But it's tricky to do all of that in the Bay Area for the obvious reasons we've already talked about, given uh, that the Bay, we're so constrained just 
in terms of the bay itself and getting across the bay and um, and the the housing and the areas that are available for for building right now. If we factored in the different cities, different counties, different communities, which all, of course, have their own stake in this, um, and we look at smart planning, we do have an organization that puts a plan together and has for many years and tries to look into the future, Association of Bay Area Governments, but it does not have any enforcement teeth to enforce these plans or to uh, require that all of the different communities and entities participate in this. Is ultimately this going to have to be uh, a regional decision? Uh, Can it sustain itself long enough to wait for everyone to agree? Or might we have to see a difference in the way we govern ourselves as a region rather than individual cities? It would make a lot of sense to have a regional authority that had some teeth in terms of being able to come up with a plan and get people's input from everywhere and being very careful about the plan, but then having a plan that can actually be instituted in terms of transportation, in terms of housing, uh, in terms of public amenities, uh, green space, and so forth. One of the big problems we face here, and we're not alone, this is very, very um, frequently a problem in urban areas around the country, is you've got so many different jurisdictions and they are competing with each other. And there is so much of a NIMBY problem that is not in my backyard. I like the way things are. I don't want those people here. Or I like having a lot of space around me. Or I, uh, and particularly, this is true of wealthy areas or wealthy districts or wealthy towns. Uh, they just don't want to cooperate or collaborate. And that creates from a both a regional standpoint and also from an economic diversity standpoint, some huge problems. Might there be a risk if, if we looked at smart planning and said, all right, well, if we're not going to pay teachers any more than what we're paying them, uh, which is a travesty in and of itself and a whole other topic for a program. But so let's say an average teacher is making between 50 and 70 a thousand a year just for conversation's sake, um, and uh, fire and police and non-tech, the non-tech, the non-upper uh, few percent. And we're structuring jobs uh, uh, and housing around transportation. Do you foresee any issues with um, people living in silos, uh, economic silos around the Bay Area, even more than we do today? Well, we're, that's right. We were all. We, I was just going to say we're already living in economic silos, and there will be more economic silos. Uh, you mentioned teachers and firefighters and police, uh, and you know people who work in shops. I mean, what happens when you get this degree of housing? Uh, this kind of housing crisis and you have a public transportation system that is not up to people's needs is that all of those workers who are middle income uh, workers who are your teachers and your firefighters and your police and your and your shop workers they can't afford to be here they have to live further and further and further away uh, that creates not only huge headaches for them, but it also creates some municipal dangers. I mean, God forbid, with really the next crisis, uh, whether it's an earthquake or a fire, uh, how do you get people who know what they are doing, police and firefighters and everybody else, uh, immediately to the scene if they are living and they have to live very, very far away. This is something, again, that's not just the Bay Area. Uh, there are a lot of communities around the country, around the United States right now, because we're segregating by income, 
much more than we've ever segregated before. Those communities are trying to develop uh, kind of set aside areas, if they're very, very rich communities, areas where the, the police and the teachers and the firefighters and people who retail workers can live uh, that are, that's just not too far away so that the entire larger community can be served. Uh, I think that if we had a Bay, Bay Area kind of regional planning process and commission that had some teeth, that would be part of the agenda. Cities are working right now, uh, Professor, to build affordable housing. Uh, to and, and when we say affordable housing, or I say there are different levels of it. Certainly we're trying to build some... Uh, affordable transitional housing to deal with the homeless uh, population um, who have not been able to keep up with with the cost of living here. And then there's affordable housing that w- could be a transition into building some wealth into moving into buying a house someday. But, you know, you talked about the Bay Area uh, 30 years down the line, and it's one thing to build affordable housing for right now. But to have a sustainable society in which family members and generationally can build wealth and move up within their own community to additional housing or expanded housing, um, that is a larger challenge to keep some continuity in a community. Oh, it's a huge challenge, Jane, especially in the Bay Area, because you've got a lot of families now. Uh, who are middle income. They bought into the Bay Area at a time where housing prices were not nearly as high as they are now. Their children don't have any hope of living here. Their children would like to live here. Many of their children are sort of living with their parents or living sort of at uh, in, in, in legal or halfway legal uh, residences built on the property or inside the houses that they grew up in. But that's not way to live. Uh, and I constantly run into people who are, and again, middle-income people who in other parts of this country would be considered to be high-income people who say to me, I really, I don't know what I'm going to do because my children really want to live here and and they can't. So this is not just an issue of homeless. It's not just an issue of the lower middle class or working class. It's an issue that really affects uh, the middle and upper middle class, the professions here in the Bay Area. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 just uh, across the board. Do you feel though that the that the immediate issues that we've talked about, smart growth, transportation being uh, smart housing, affordable housing being built around transportation, is at least enough? I mean, that might start to deal with the crisis right now, but is that enough to build a sustainable uh, Bay Area in which families, extended families, can stay in the same region? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it requires a huge amount of public investment in public transportation, in the kind of infrastructure one needs, uh, subsidies for lower income housing. Also, uh, something that we haven't talked about, and that is inclusionary uh, zoning. So you say, in effect, to developers who are making a lot of money, and there's nothing bad about making money, but they're making a lot of money putting up luxury apartments, you say to them, well, if you really do want to put up more luxury apartments, you've got to set aside some of that space and build low income and medium income so that these are truly diverse, economically diverse uh, kind of structures or clusters of of very of high rise structures that you are building. Uh, other cities have tried. Uh, New York um, is making some progress. It's not 
the entire answer. There's no magic bullet here, but I think inclusionary zoning is part of the solution. If you're just joining us, we are talking about our home, the Bay Area, how expensive it is to live here, uh, the benefits of it. Is it worth it? Some possible solutions. And my guest on KCBS In-Depth is former U.S. Labor Secretary and the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, Professor Robert Reich. I'm Jane McMillan. How would you respond to folks who say, well, this is just the free market. People want to be here. And so things are expensive. And this is just the passage of time and progress and the way things move along and things will shake out. Those who can make it will stay and those who cannot will leave. Uh, well, you can say to them, <laughs> you know, obviously we, we, we do have a choice. We can all kind of uh, uh, go back to kind of a jungle economy uh, in which uh, there's survival of the fittest and we can all end up living here in the Bay Area, just uh, the older and the wealthier. Uh, but it also, that kind of view also is naive in the sense that there are public policies that are shaping the Bay Area. Uh, we already talked about zoning. I mean, zoning is a big deal. Uh, land use policies are a huge deal. That's why we have such a beautiful Bay Area in many respects in terms of public parks and much of Marin County and so forth uh, and the coastal area because areas have been set aside. Well, they, they're not automatically set aside. They're, they're set aside because of government action. Uh, and that same zoning and that same government action could accomplish uh, more clustering and more inclusionary zoning, requiring developers to put in low-income and medium-income housing units. Uh, we also do need to get much more serious about uh, effective and very, very um, efficient public transit. We haven't talked about schools um, and, and, and education, and that's obviously part of the puzzle as well. Because if you don't have a regional plan, what you end up with are these silos of communities, some very, very wealthy and some very, very poor. And those poor communities, although they are vanishing as they become gentrified, they are still very much part of the Bay Area. But they, because they're tax bases are so low. They don't really have very good schools and very good public amenities. And that itself is a problem in terms of just the inequities facing the Bay Area. Is a microcosm of what you've talked about in, in all of your books, and, uh, and that is the lack of upward mobility and the, the, the inability, what we used to have to move uh, say, from even poverty into the middle class, uh, the lower middle class into a more comfortable middle class. Um, that is certainly difficult here, jumping from one pool to the next because of the, uh, well, the cost of living, but also the great gaps in salaries for the yes, jobs being offered. Exactly. If you, The less middle class you have, if your middle class is shrinking, and it's shrinking all around the country, but it's shrinking very dramatically here in the Bay Area. Uh, if you don't have a thriving and growing middle class, it becomes almost impossible for people at the bottom to move into the middle class for the logical and simple reason there are fewer spaces to move into. And also because kind of sociologically and psychologically, uh, the dwindling middle class becomes just more fearful of falling into poverty and they don't want to be very generous toward those in need. And they have a, a, a kind of a heightened NIMBY 
fear, not you know, not in my backyard because my housing prices and my home values are what I have to hold on to and I don't want to lose them by having even poorer people come within the area that is my kind of real estate market. So uh, you, you've got a, a whole set of difficult and becoming far more difficult social problems if you end up with just the rich and just the poor. And that is really what's happening in the Bay Area. You know, a couple of uh, years ago when we were speaking about the debt crisis, when we were in the middle, more than a couple, uh, as the recession was really hitting, uh, and you were you know, talking to us and warning us that, hey, there's a personal debt crisis still uh, coming as well, that folks were using their homes as ATMs at the time. And now, though, in the Bay Area, folks who have been able to be in the housing market are looking at their homes as their retirement, and they are going to need to make that decision uh, to cash out and and leave and possibly leave family, but leave the area taking their roots and their longtime institutional knowledge and participation in this region with them because the home has become the only way to retire. And to, the only way to do that is to take that money and get out. Yes, and, and people will be leaving the Bay Area, uh, undoubtedly, because as housing prices increase, uh, people who have been in their homes for a very, very long time, uh, that basically those homes become their their nest eggs and they have not had an opportunity to save. And that's true of much of the American middle class uh, and the working class. Uh, people assumed that they were going to be able to save much more than they have been able to save for retirement, uh, partly because the Great Recession intruded, uh, partly because they didn't really get the pension uh, that they expected because corporations are no longer providing the degree of uh, defined benefit protections and pensions that people used to have. Uh, but that means that, yes, they're going to be cashing out. And that cashing out process means, in turn, that they will be selling to wealthier people who can afford to pay the inflated higher prices of real estate, which further exacerbates the underlying problem. And that is, again, being left with a two-tiered society here in the Bay Area, uh, either very wealthy or very poor. And you've explained that we can use government um, to help zoning laws and smart growth and all that. But as your uh, former labor secretary putting on that hat, uh, no way to kind of amortize wages. Um, certainly someone who works in a lovely restaurant is not going to be making the kind of money where they might be able to actually go and enjoy that restaurant, uh, like perhaps a tech worker uh, is. So how to solve the the wage gap? Well, now you're entering on, on, on a very, very large question, Jane, that is a question the entire country faces. In fact, much of the advanced so-called economies of the world face. This is not just a problem here in the United States. Uh, it's a problem in, in Europe and in Japan and elsewhere because you you do have inequality breaking out all over, not to the extent perhaps as in the United States, but it is part of this stage, one might say, of uh, the kind of capitalism we practice. Uh, what has to happen is one thing, we've got to give people more of a more of a stake, an equity stake, you might call it, in the assets that are appreciating, like homes. Uh, 
or for example, companies. We have now a, a system of capital and technology in which fewer and fewer people can produce more and more. Companies in the Bay Area that are generating billions and billions of dollars of profits and have net worths of, of just extraordinary amounts, but very few employees. And they are developing artificial intelligence and robotics that are going to be taking over even more jobs. I mean, look at the self-driving car, for example. It's coming right out of the Bay Area. There are four and a half million people in the United States who are commercial drivers. And over the next 10 years, they're going to be losing their jobs. Well, what do we do about that? Uh, I think one answer is to give people more of an equity stake in the companies that hire them. I mean, I've been gently suggesting, gently, to some of the you know Uber and Lyft and some of these other companies that are going to be, uh, that are now going to be basically driverless car companies in the not too distant future, uh, that they give the drivers who are now, uh, in effect, working for them, although they don't want to consider these drivers employees, uh, an equity stake, uh, shares in the company. Uh, the same thing ought to be the case with regard to renters. People who are now renting are not getting the benefit of the appreciation in the value of homes. There ought to be some ways of giving them at least part of the of a stake in the increased value of those homes so that they can take that value when they leave, uh, instead of just being priced out of the market, they can take part of that value and they uh, they can use it as a down payment on a house, maybe someplace else. Looking at, at wages, I mean, if we're talking about the ultimate question here, is it worth it? We've talked about all the challenges and the expense, but then why people do want to be here, certainly jo the jobs, uh, the economy uh, for a segment of the population is a huge draw, the universities, but it's basically because it is beautiful uh, and it's our home. We most, uh, most of us have grown up here or come uh, here long ago enough that we feel like we were raised here. Um, but what a healthy split in a household income percentage-wise to where we have enough money left over to actually even enjoy the fact that this is a beautiful place and and that our quality of life is actually tangible, not just, oh, our quality of life here could be great because we could go skiing or we could go to a lovely restaurant or we could go to the wine country. How many people can really afford to do that as they're trying to make ends meet? So what's a healthy uh, percentage of income to where one has the ability to have a quality of life? Well, that's a that's a philosophical question I can't answer, but I can say that the Bay Area does offer a huge and unusually large amount of amenities in terms of public parks and recreation. Uh, it's easier to have a lovely, what's the term that people are using these days, staycation in the Bay Area than probably any other place I know. Uh, the trails, the the hiking trails, the, the biking, I mean, things that uh, we take for granted that most of the rest of the country does not have. And, um, you know, if you add up all of this discussion, Jane, there is the the reality that if you if you can't afford it, and if you don't like it, and there are really larger and larger downsides. I mean, at, at some point, people are just going to say, well, 
I love it here, but it's just too expensive and it's too congested and it's too difficult. And goodbye. Professor Robert Reich, as always, we appreciate your insight, especially as a Bay Arean now. Well, thank you, Jane. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stay right here in the Bay Area. Glad to hear it. My guest on KCBS has been former U.S. Labor Secretary and the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, Robert Reich. And his latest book, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few, is now out in paperback. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.